Well, this is that time, as you all know, that is the time of great joy for me where I get to introduce uh, our guest preacher for the morning. So you may have those people in your life who seem to pop up at those moments of transition, those sort of forks in the road, and the Lord uses them wonderfully in your life. They may not live in your town. They may not be members of your family. But as you just look over your life, you, you know those people that God has used as great instruments of grace and change. And our guest preacher is one of those kind of men for me. So when I was transitioning out of the investment world and thinking about pastoral ministry, he was there. He helped me think through that. Uh, he had me up to his church and he gave me uh, a volume, a biography of Whitfield, George Whitfield by Arnold Dallimore that was hugely instructive and helpful. He just said, take what you want. It was the first volume was $70. He said, grab both volumes. They're yours. I want it to encourage you. And that's just the heart that he has. And then at times when I was in seminary thinking about what to do next, he got together with my wife and me and leaned into us and the very energetic and charismatic nature that he has, which you'll come to experience in a moment. He does not need espresso in the morning. He's ready to go. And he told my wife and I that you know we ought to seriously consider, which is another way of saying he just told us, that we ought to go to D.C., serve there. And, and the Lord used him in those conversations to bring us back to D.C. for five just wonderful years of ministry. And if it weren't for some of those conversations, we wouldn't be here with you this morning. So that's why it's sort of another one of those seasons of transitions. It's just with great joy that I get to introduce him to you. He is passionate about sports. He is passionate not about geography. So I picked him up at the airport. And uh, I said, you ever been in northwest Arkansas? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. And he proceeded for the next about five minutes to explain Little Rock to me. I said, no, no, we're not in Little Rock. This is, this is Fayetteville. This is northwest Arkansas. I drove him around. I said, now we're heading north. And he finally said, forget it. Just don't bother with directions. I'll get to know the place. I'll enjoy it. He's not passionate about geography, but he is passionate about sports. He's passionate about people. So last night, it's midnight. We're down at Dixon, and he's meeting people, getting information, looking for opportunities to share the gospel. So if I appear a little tired, you know why. He'll be fine this morning. Loves people. Um, passionate about his wife and family. If you know him, you know that he is a man who loves his family deeply. And that is only eclipsed by his tremendous love for the Lord. As one who is saved, who knows God's grace to him in Christ, and who ministers with great joy and energy out of the way that God has loved him. So with that, let me just, my pleasure to introduce to you the pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville, Kentucky, C.J. Mahaney. Come on up, brother. Is this mandatory? Great. Great. <laughs> okay, this is a an unusual joy for me to be here with you for a number of reasons. And and thank you for the, the warm welcome you have extended to me. Thank you, my friend, for those kind remarks. And thank you for this this invitation. Uh, I, I'm honored to be here and, and I'm having a blast being here with you. Who, who wouldn't have a blast getting to know you and being here with you? Uh, last night I was with your elders and their wives. Oh my, their, their love for the Savior is obvious and their care for you is, is quite evident. So I know this morning you, you are being well served. And I, this is not a paid political announcement. I don't do paid political announcements. I, I don't flatter. I, I am a fan of Brad and Aaron. Okay, I am a fan of theirs. And next week I saw where Mark Dever is going to be here, most appropriately doing the installation service. Well, I, I have, listen, Mark, Mark is a dear friend and I care for and about him deeply. And I can vividly remember, actually, as I sit here listening to Brad introduce me, I vividly remember, I vividly remember sitting next to Mark Dever on the steps of Capitol Hill Baptist Church after Brad had left. I'm here. Mark is here. And as Mark is reflecting over his love for Brad and how much you will miss Brad, Mark is in tears. And we just begin to talk about the future. And there, there's just a brief conversation about the 
possible potential or at least Mark's desire. He didn't see this as possibly being workable, but his desire that Brad would one day return and, and serve there on the staff strategically with him. And I actually began praying that day for that to take place. So when I heard that was even a possibility and an option, oh, you, you bet I participated in the recruiting process. So yes, I was there at Jay Alexander's in Louisville, leaning in and doing my best to say, look, given, given the call of God on Mark Dever, that pastoral team, the strategic significance and influence of, of uh, uh, CHBC, Capital Hill Baptist Church, I, I would like to encourage you, please consider. I would like to, I would like to ask you to please consider going there to serve, knowing that would be a sacrifice for Brad and Aaron because, because they're from Southern California and everybody just assumes since that's where their hearts are, that's what they would return to and, and minister to, minister there. But instead they agreed, they, they agreed to go somewhere that they didn't initially see in their future to serve at that church. And here's what I want you to know. Wow. Them leaving that church now to come here. That's like a big loss. That is like a huge loss to that church. That church's loss is your wonderful gain. And, and how cool is it that they're here? Oh, my, my. Listen, anybody who knows Brad and Aaron didn't have them here. They had them somewhere in Southern California. If they ever left CHBC, there's no question about where they're going to be. There's a church. There's a church somewhere in Southern California. There's a number of churches in Southern California who would desire them. So that's where everybody had them geographically. And yet if William Cooper were here, he would lead us in the song, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, His Wonders to Perform, because here they are in Fayetteville, Arkansas instead with you. How kind of the Lord to orchestrate all of that. And listen, as their friend, I just want to say thank you because to be with them is to hear of the way you have received them and the way you are caring for them. And that brings me joy. So I can fly away today happy, peaceful, and content. They're being well taken care of. They're good to go. You're good to go. And I believe God has great plans by his grace and for his glory for this church as you advance the gospel together. So thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here to get to know you. And it's a privilege to be here on this occasion to commend my friend. So thank you. And none of that counts as sermon time. Nothing I just said. (laughs) Please turn in your Bibles to the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark chapter 6. And this morning we are going to give our attention to Mark 6, beginning in verse 45 and concluding in verse 52. And I now have the privilege to read to you God's Word. And as I read, let let all of our hearts be filled with anticipation for God is eager to bless the reading of His Word, the proclamation of His Word, and draw near to us through the reading and proclamation of his word. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It has become my favorite book 
about sports. Actually, after I finished reading the book, I so enjoyed this book that I began to read it again. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's that good. Its title, The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. I'm going to let author Daniel James Brown describe the origin of the book for you. He writes, this book was born on a cold, drizzly, late spring day when I clambered over the split rail cedar fence that surrounds my pasture and made my way through wet woods to the modest frame house where Joe Rance lay dying. I knew only two things about Joe when I knocked on his daughter Judy's door that day. I knew that in his mid-70s, he had single-handedly hauled a number of cedar logs down a mountain, then hand-split the rails and cut the posts and installed all 2,224 linear feet of the pasture fence I had just climbed over, a task so Herculean I shake my head in wonderment whenever I think about it. And I knew that he had been one of nine young men from the state of Washington, farm boys, fishermen, and loggers who shocked both the rowing world and Adolf Hitler by winning the gold medal in the eight-oared rowing at the 1936 Olympics. Oh, my. Mr. Brown very uh, eloquently and effectively tells their story. Actually, it was so well written that even though I knew they won the gold medal, I was still nervous at the end that they would lose in the Olympic final. Listen, because I care for you and I care about you, I am not going to draw your attention this morning to football. I am going to draw your attention to a different sport. I'm going to draw your attention to rowing. This, this book not only describes this, this unique and compelling story, the book, the book introduces those like myself who are mostly ignorant about rowing to the rigors of rowing. So, so listen, listen as Mr. Brown describes what rowing requires. Competitive rowing is an undertaking of extraordinary beauty preceded by brutal punishment. Unlike most sports, which draw primarily on particular muscle groups, rowing makes heavy and repeated use of every muscle in the body. And rowing makes these muscular demands, not at odd intervals, but in rapid sequence over a protracted period of time, repeatedly and without respite. Physiologists, in fact, have calculated that rowing a 2,000-meter race, the Olympic standard, takes the same physiological toll as playing two basketball games back-to-back, and it exacts that toll in about six minutes. The common denominator, whether in the lungs, the muscles, or the bones, the common denominator is overwhelming pain. Rowing is perhaps the toughest of sports. The 12 disciples were the original boys in the boat. They are the canonized version. And and their experience of rowing is a part of redemptive history. And though they weren't aware of it that evening as they hurriedly embarked from shore at the Savior's command, this, this experience that evening was an intentional part of their training and preparation for apostolic ministry. On This evening, they would be reminded of the unique pain of rowing, not not from competition, but for the purpose of survival. And they would never forget. They would never forget their encounter with the Son of God this particular evening as they attempted to row across the Sea of Galilee. And all this happened All this happened so that we might encounter the Son of God this morning. All because of what took place with these boys in this boat. Three points that I want to draw your attention to. All I trust drawn from this passage. First, the setting. The setting. Verses 45 and 46. The setting. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Why? Like, why immediately? And why did he immediately make the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side? Why the apparent rush? Why why the apparent urgency? This this urgency suggests a concern or a crisis of some kind that actually Mark 
doesn't explain, but John does help us to understand in his parallel account of this event. And, and one, one really can't understand what's going down in verse 45 if one doesn't understand the previous creative miracle in verses 30 to 44, the miracle, the creative miracle of multiplication, the multiplication of the loaves and fish. In John's gospel, he informs us of the following that took place just after the multiplying of the loaves and the fish. We read in John's gospel, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So Jesus perceives immediately following the miracle, beginning in verse 30, concluding in verse 44, he perceives that they, the multitude, were going to come and take him, listen, by force to make him king. He withdraws again to the mountain by himself. So after this creative miracle of multiplication, Jesus perceives that there was a most concerning messianic excitement and fervor in the air. There is a revolutionary groundswell. The crowds that numbered 5,000 men and no doubt thousands of more women and children, they, they wanted to make him their king. They wanted to make him their king right there and right then. They, they wanted a political and military revolution in opposition to Rome, and they had determined that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was the one to lead him. This, however, was not the purpose for which Jesus came. No. No, he came as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. No, no. He, he was making his way to a hill called Calvary. And he did not want his disciples influenced by this contagious atmosphere because his disciples were clueless as to his mission at this point. And he knew his disciples would have been enthusiastic about this proposal. They would have been supportive of this action to make him king and to inaugurate a political and military revolution. So he acts. Oh, Jesus acts immediately and he acts decisively to separate his disciples from this scene lest they get caught up in this messianic fervor of the multitude. So he immediately makes the disciples get into the boat and to sail across the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, if I were one of the disciples and I were present in that moment, I would not have been good to go with this. I would not have been good to go because it was only in chapter 4 when the disciples experienced a life-threatening storm where they assumed and concluded they were going to perish. So if I was one of the disciples in chapter 6, I would have voiced a protest. I would have said, listen, (laughs) this is only chapter 6. We almost died in chapter 4. Haven't recovered yet from chapter 4. Not ready to set sail again across the Sea of Galilee. And one more thing, you're not going with us. So I would not have been responsive to this command if I were present. You can be grateful I wasn't present. Your Bibles would be larger if I was present because of the numerous times I would have inserted myself into these discussions. Immediately, he made his disciples go into the boat. And then notice, he disperses the crowd and he does so peacefully while he dismissed the crowd. Oh my, my. Folks, folks, this would be no easy task. No easy task given their heightened level of excitement and intent. So I would have loved, oh, how I would have loved to have been present to observe this skillful, authoritative display of leadership by the Son of God. He dismissed them. And then he withdraws. He went up on the mountain to pray. That is the setting. Second, the crisis. The crisis, verses 57 47 to 50, the crisis. As the disciples attempt to proceed to their destination, they they encounter a strong headwind. It's a strong headwind that impedes their progress. Not a life-threatening storm. It's not similar to the storm they encountered and experienced in chapter 4. But the the wind is formidable. The wind is formidable. Their progress is minimal. And the rowing is painful. 
The NIV reads, they were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And this goes on for hours. Mark informs us that Jesus saw them in their distress and eventually makes his way to them during during the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So Jesus is once again, yet again, moved with compassion toward his disciples. And this moment and this event, they, they are actually part of the intentional training of the 12. So he is moved with compassion toward them. He comes to them in the fourth watch of the night, walking on the water to them. And this moment and this miracle is without doubt the centerpiece of this story. Because Jesus is always the centerpiece of the story. He he is always the main character in the story. So he comes to them walking on the water. And then then we come to a phrase which, which initially strikes us as odd, does it not? Strikes us as strange. Verse 48, end of verse 48, he meant to pass by them. What? Like, like whatever, whatever could that mean? I mean, surely he came to help them and not simply walk by them. Surely his intent wasn't simply to walk by them. Hey, fellas. No, surely his intent was to help them. Oh, very much so. Oh, he, he has come, he has come to help them. And actually this phrase, he meant to pass by them. It, it actually informs us about the significance of what is going down here. The, the phrase actually assumes a familiarity with the Old Testament. The phrase is an echo from, from a familiar dramatic scene in the Old Testament. The phrase, the phrase is informed by its usage in the Old Testament, and, and it arrives in this account with all the force of its usage in the Old Testament, signifying the revelation of God himself. His commentary, Donald English writes, One remarkable miracle, the previous creative miracle of multiplication, is followed by an even more outstanding one. So the phrase he meant to pass by them is it's a deliberate, it's a deliberate identification with how God has revealed himself in the Old Testament. And let me remind you of that moment. So Mark is informing us that this, this is a miracle. This miracle, it, it, it's a manifestation of the transcendent Lord who will pass by the disciples just as God passed by Moses in Exodus chapter 33. So, so listen, as I just refresh your memory of this event described in Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It is that moment and that event and those words that inform what is taking place in Mark chapter 6. Yes, he meant to pass by them. He meant to reveal himself to them as God the Son. He meant to reveal the glory of God to them. By by coming to them in this way, Jesus is doing something that only God can do. Only God walks on the sea. 
And as we heard earlier in the book of Job, chapter 9, Job, Job describes the transcendence of God with these words, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So, so the God who passed by Moses, the transcendent one, is now passing by the disciples and revealing himself to them as God himself. So this act is one of divine self-revelation. He, he is doing what only God can do. He is displaying the glory of God to the disciples, and he is doing so in a unique way. For when the Lord passed by Moses, he could only see his back and still live. This, this passing by would be unique, for he was meant to be seen. He meant for them to see his face, not simply his back. He meant for them to behold his glory. David Garland writes, Jesus walking on the water to his disciples is a revelation of the glory that he shares with the Father. Jesus is not pulling off a staggering visual stunt to amaze his friends. Rather, the miracle attests that God himself has visited us in the flesh. Oh, yes, he very much meant to pass by them. He meant to identify himself with how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. He meant to display the glory of God to them. The disciples don't just see Jesus' back. They see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. That's what's going down here. However, notice the reaction of the disciples. Notice the reaction of the disciples to this sight. They were terrified. Verse 50. They were terrified. (laughs) You think? (laughs) They were terrified. Who wouldn't be terrified? Who would not be terrified at this sight? This sight of Jesus walking on the sea terrifies them. They thought it was a ghost. They thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, and they were terrified. And please remember, most of these guys, these were tough, blue-collar guys, okay? They would have fit in very well last night at the Bikers, Blues, and Barbecue event. And yet they're terrified. And they cry out. And they think it's a ghost. Which brings us to point three, the compassion. Verses 50 to 52, the compassion. Listen, one thing, one thing you cannot miss and, and one thing we, we must not miss in the midst of this, this miracle is, is, is Jesus' care for them. Oh, my. We must not miss this. They were terrified, but look in verse 50. They were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them. Oh, they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. Take heart. It, it, it is I. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then notice in verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Oh, my. Behold his compassion. Actually, his compassion for them has been evident all along. We read in verse 48 that he saw that they were making headway painfully. So he saw that. They, 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 were, they were never out of his sight. Though they couldn't see him, he never lost sight of them. And he was, no doubt, praying for them. And then in verse 48, he came to them in their distress. And then he revealed himself to them in all his glory. And then when they were terrified, he immediately comforted them and said, It is I. And finally, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is no imaginary superhero. This is the Son of God. Behold the Son of God. Behold the Son of God walking on the water He created. Behold the Son of God with the authority over the wind. Behold the Son of God filled with compassion for His disciples. Listen, the disciples don't realize who He is. Oh, but the wind and the sea immediately recognize who He is. And it's just, it's just a wonderful picture of his care and his compassion for them. 
and his care for us in the midst of our storms is no different. It's no different. He saw them. They were never out of his sight. We are never out of his sight. He, no doubt, prayed for them. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He came to them. He has come to us and revealed himself to us first and foremost through the proclamation of the gospel. He comforted them and he comforts us. He comforts us primarily through his word. He comforts us as the church gathers and the word is proclaimed. He comforts us in the context of friendship in the local church. He comforted them and he comforts us. Listen as J.C. Ryle describes the, the relevance of this scene to us. Ryle wrote, There are thoughts here of comfort for all true believers. Wherever they may be or whatsoever their circumstances, the Lord Jesus sees them. The same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. We are never beyond the reach of his care. Our way is never hid from him. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us to utterly fail. He that walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time to uphold his people. Though he tarry, let us wait patiently. Jesus sees us and he will not forsake us. So let me ask you a question. Where might you be feeling a strong headwind this morning? Where, where, where do you feel like a strong opposing wind as, as, as you attempt to, to, to row by grace in righteousness? Where do you feel a pronounced Strong, opposing, headwind. Oh my, given the size of this congregation, surely, surely there are some present who, who, who feel weary. You feel weary. You are, you are tired of rowing. You are exhausted from rowing. Even in your attempts to row, you feel as if you are making little progress. And perhaps there are some who have just stopped rowing altogether. The oars lie still. Or perhaps even pulled into your boat. And you are just adrift. You, you wonder this morning, well, does he see... Me? Does he see me? And if he sees me, does, does he care for and about me? So, so what headwind might you be encountering this morning? Oh, headwinds come in many forms. It, 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 could, it could simply be a besetting sin. Besetting sin in your life that dogs you and gives you no apparent rest. Could be a chronic illness. Not just sick. Your illness is chronic. Maybe even an illness for which... No diagnosis has been found. Oh, tests have been run. Every conceivable test has been run with no clear diagnosis. It's not just illness. It's chronic. And the medical community has not been able to provide you with hope that your life will ever be different. So just getting up in the morning, as soon as you awake, you are aware there's a headwind. It's how you feel. You're sick. It's going to be another day rowing in the face of this headwind. Could be you have a child with a disability. Your headwind could be, could be a wayward child. 
the wayward teen? Maybe you've been blindsided recently by a layoff. You got laid off. You didn't see it coming. So now you have financial challenges. You didn't imagine. You didn't encounter. It's just a just a strong headwind. Could could be could be opposition from family members to your faith, or opposition in the context of the university to your faith. Could be could be a friend that has betrayed you. Could be a spouse that has left you. Could be someone you deeply love who recently died. Strong headwind might be your mother of multiple small children. And yep, they are gifts from the Lord. But as you awaken each day, you know there are storms afoot. Listen, a strong headwind is wherever your hope has been deferred. Wherever your hope has been deferred, and as a result, your heart is sick. You're tired. You, you, are, you are weary. You are tired of rowing. Tired of even the prospect of another day of rowing. Listen, J.C. Ryle would say to you this morning, there are thoughts here of comfort for you. If you arrive today feeling that strong headwind, there, there are thoughts of comfort here for you. Oh, yes, there are. Oh, yeah, there are, there are some serious thoughts of comfort. Here, here are thoughts of comfort. He sees. He sees you. He cares. He prays. He will come. He will comfort. And, and he will calm. And, and J.C. Ryle is, is wise to remind us that he may not come to our aid at the time we like best. Did you miss that sentence? Well, there's a wealth of wisdom in that sentence. That's why I got to draw your attention to that sentence because actually the Lord's timing here in this event and moment should be instructive to us. Verse 48, he came about the fourth watch of the night. He came, when did he come? Between three and six a.m. These boys had been rowing for hours, hours. Strong headwind, little progress. He had been watching them for hours. It would appear, it would appear that Jesus let them experience the extremity of their need before he came to them. And so often our experience is no different. Listen, you'll, you'll discover, if you haven't already discovered, that God is often the God of the fourth watch. He, God specializes in arriving during the fourth watch. So if you find yourself rowing this morning and exhausted from rowing, if you find yourself rowing and making little progress, if you find yourself this morning wondering, wondering if he sees, wondering if he cares, wondering when he will come, wondering if he will provide, listen, let, let the wise words of Charles Spurgeon strengthen your heart as you row this morning. Mr. Spurgeon would say to us, oh, oh, for the grace to feel that if we do not know when God will deliver us, then, Spurgeon says, then it is none of our business. If God knows, that is enough. We are to follow him, not lead. We are to obey him, not prescribe. Your deliverance is near, but if it tarries, it will be a richer blessing. Oh, my. Oh, my. My friend, my friend, if you are tired of rowing, exhausted from rowing, if, 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 if you find yourself, listen, in a season where there is a strong headwind, oh, my. And, and seasons of strong headwind, they, I just personally, they, they are not my preference. Okay? I like sailing. I, I like a strong wind just carrying me along. I like, I like to sail with a strong headwind, a strong wind at my back. Don't you? I, I like seasons of sailing. I prefer prosperity. I do. I like comfort. I like it immediately. I don't prefer trials. I don't prefer suffering. No thanks. I want to be blessed, okay? My last trip I took just a few weeks ago, going to Philadelphia, walk in the Louisville airport, 
and uh, an unusual sight and, and a very long line. I remember it just took me aback. I stopped momentarily at, at the counter of the airline where I must get in line. There was a long line. I've never seen a long line in the Louisville airport. This was an unusually long line. This was an incredibly long line. I don't prefer waiting, okay? Didn't develop my waiting skills as I was growing up. Waiting is not my preference. So I stood there for a moment and tried to assess the situation because it appeared I was going to have to wait because I was going to wait a long time. And then my eyes fastened and fell on a little sign. It was handmade. It was just a few feet in front of me. And it was up on, on a, standing on a stand, and it just said, Philly. And, and, and it just had an arrow to the left. And I looked for a second, and I looked to the left, and, and there was nobody to the left. So there was somebody serving everybody who would go in to the left. The long line was on the right. And so I felt just a, a moment of guilt, decided not to make eye contact with anybody going to the right, uh, walking in integrity. I'm going to Philly. This, this seems to tell me Philly to the left. And so I walked right up, and, and it was. And they, they met me, and they took care of me. And, and within seconds, I was moving away from the counter, did not have to endure the line. Again, did not make eye contact with anybody there. Felt slight residual guilt, but just a slight guilt. It was more than compensated by my happiness because I like sailing. I like sailing, okay? And then, lo and behold, as I'm walking through security, I realize I've got the TSA thing. It says it up on the left-hand corner of the ticket, TSA thing, because there's another long line. So everybody's waiting in a long line. And again, I don't believe in lines. I don't do lines, don't like lines. But this little ticket says that I can go left because there's nobody there. Nobody. I walk. I walk up. Again, slight guilt. Make no eye contact. But I walk right up. They take me through. And I go through to you. Don't have to take off my shoes. Nothing go through. And as I'm just walking through the airport, I'm thinking, this is how I like to roll, Lord, when I'm serving you. I can do this. This works. What headwinds? Sail on! What's next? No line at Starbucks. What is next? That's how I like to roll. That's how I prefer my days. And when that headwind begins, well, in my arrogance, I'm too quick to prescribe. I got recommendations for the Lord. Who gives counsel to the Lord? Arrogant dopes like me do at times. Yeah. Lord, uh, let's work together on this. Um, now Spurgeon says, CJ, you're to follow, not lead. You're to obey, not prescribe. Oh, my friend, let me, let me just encourage you this morning. Keep rowing. You find yourself in a season with a strong headwind, keep rowing. Keep rowing. However, unlike the disciples, row in faith. They, they did not row in faith. These boys were not expecting him to come. And, and they were terrified when they should have trusted. By the way, can't help but notice Jesus expected them to trust him. Jesus expected them to perceive who he was and to respond appropriately to them. Instead, they were terrified, listen, and they were astounded, but they did not trust him. And Mark describes why when he writes in verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Oh my, what's going down here? Here's what's going on. They, They were present for the miracle of multiplication of the loaves and the fish. But they failed to comprehend that the miracle pointed beyond itself to reveal the identity of Jesus. Well, I mean, they, these guys marveled at the miracle. They marveled at it. And they, they were actually included as part of Jesus' training for them. So he is multiplying the loaves and fish, and they are the ones distributing it. So they're there, live, in person, up close, personal. They know what's going down crowd unaware what's going down every time thousands of people every time they return jesus does the multiplication thing and they with no doubt smiles on their faces make eye contact with each other as they return to a particular section to feed that section to return i mean they're they're what this is all a part of their intentional training 
And the miracle was intended to reveal the miracle worker. But these guys missed the purpose and the point of the miracle, revealing the identity of Jesus as God himself. So this miracle was a part of their training. It was a part of their preparation. It was a part of their preparation for the storm. And if they had understood the point and the purpose of the miracle of the loaves and fish, then they would have responded differently as he walked on water toward them in the storm. So he revealed himself in the miracle of the loaves so that their faith would be strengthened for this storm and the other tests that awaited them. So this storm really forms a challenge for them to grow in faith. And our storms are no different. They form a challenge for us to grow in faith. Our our history of the graciousness and the faithfulness of God is to prepare us for storms so that we would trust him in the midst of storms. So it's clear here. I can't soften this. The Lord Lord expected them to grow in his trust in him. and, And he expects us to grow similarly. So everyone present here this morning, listen, everyone present, you either find yourself in the midst of a storm where the wind and the waves make rowing painful and exhausting, or if you are not presently in the midst of a storm, listen, at some point you will no doubt notice dark clouds forming on the horizon of your life. At some point, someday, you you will feel the wind begin to pick up in your face. And these passages, they are to prepare us for the storms. They are to prepare us for the headwind. They are to prepare us for the storms of trial and suffering that await each of us because the Lord does expect us to trust Him because He has proven Himself trustworthy. He, He is the sovereign God who is good and wise and delights in revealing himself to us, especially in the midst of our storms. And our history of experience with God's graciousness and faithfulness is to prepare us and to inform us for our present storms and our future storms. So he expects us to grow in faith. And yet, oh my, We also perceive the patience of God. Oh, the patience of God is so present and pronounced. As Jesus perseveres with the disciples, even though they don't get it, even though yet again they fail to trust him, even though yet again they fail to recognize him, oh, he does not scold them. Oh, no. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. He does not scold them. He does not say to them, what is it going to take for your dopes to trust in me? And I think really some of the sweetest words are verse 53. They had crossed over. (laughs) The mission, the mission continues when they had crossed over. Oh my, those are sweet words. They are. I mean, you wouldn't have been surprised if it said, and when they had crossed over, Jesus dismissed the 12 and started over, found 12 new guys and sought to. No, no, Same, same guys, even though they didn't get it, same guys. And by the way, we, we have, we have more reason to trust him in the midst of the storm. We have more reason. Because we have a clearer demonstration of his love than the miracle of multiplication, than the miracle of walking on the water. No, no. We, we have the clearest, most compelling demonstration of his love, and that would be the cross. And Mark actually draws our attention to the cross in this story. And so we conclude appropriately with, giving attention to this. You might, you might have missed it. It's in verse 46. It's embedded in verse 46. It says he went up on the mountain to pray. He went up on the mountain to pray. Mark is very intentional in the structure of his gospel. He's very purposeful and strategic in his reference to Jesus withdrawing to pray. And there's only three times in Mark's gospel where we're informed Jesus withdrew to pray. So these would obviously not be the only times he prayed, but these were strategic times of prayer, and that's why Mark draws our attention to them. So the first one is in chapter 1, the outset of his ministry. His fame begins to spread, and he intentionally withdraws to pray. The second one is in chapter 6. This would be at the height of his popularity 
among the crowds. And then the final one will be in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that will be just prior to his arrest and his crucifixion. So what is common to each is that each was a moment of crisis for Jesus. And at each moment he withdrew to pray and he withdrew to pray for a purpose. In each case, there was either a popular enthusiasm building among the crowds for him to fulfill their messianic expectations or he was facing his impending suffering. So these were moments of either heightened popularity or imminent suffering. But in each case, there was this temptation, the temptation to avoid suffering, the temptation to avoid the cross. And therefore, in each case, by withdrawing to pray, he is depending on the Father, he is strengthened by the Father, and he freshly affirms his obedience to the Father because he has come to make his way to a hill called Calvary. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He has come to still a far more serious and violent storm than this storm. This storm wasn't the storm he ultimately came to calm. No, no, this storm actually points to a future storm. He would endure a storm like no other storm. It would be the storm of God's righteous, furious wrath being poured out upon him for our sins and as our substitute for our sins. This would be a storm he couldn't still with his word or even his presence, it could only be stilled by his death. And because he endured that storm of God's wrath, here's the good news for us. We don't have to fear any storm we presently confront or will confront in this life. You, you will be able to sing with the hymn writer John Newton, with Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray. Oh, Father, for those present who are weary of rowing, I pray that they would experience fresh grace fresh comfort, fresh strength, fresh assurance that you see and you care and you come and you sent your Son on their behalf to die in their place and in your timing you will come afresh and calm the storm. Lord, I pray that there will be fresh strength to row and to row in faith in the midst of strong headwind. Smiling because your son has addressed the most serious and violent storm, having satisfied your righteous wrath against our sins by his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Lord, fresh grace. To all, rowing against a headwind, I pray in Jesus' name.